Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. The good guy coming in last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. All right, welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. This is your host, Locke, and today I'm real excited to announce I got with me uh, author and former New York Times editor, Michael Cannell. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great. It's really great to be here with you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, especially on a holiday weekend. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Yeah, no, it's totally my pleasure. So I came across your book. We were originally at one time looking at covering Abe Reles on our podcast. We cover a lot of gangsters and criminals. And I found your book and it was a great resource on a guy that's, you know, there's a lot of different stories. There's a lot of mixed information. So I was looking for something that has, you know, some good information. And I found your book and not only was it good for reference material, but sometimes these books that have a lot of accurate information are sometimes tough reads. Uh, mm. But your book was also a very easy to read. That's the first thing I want to say. We talked about it on our Harry Strauss episode who we ended up covering, but a uh, great book. It's called A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc. So what kind of led you to covering Abe Reles and writing that book? Well, it's an interesting question. I, I didn't really set out um, to, you know, in life to write crime books, but I seem to be doing that. I wrote a book about the first case of criminal profiling called Incendiary, the first time in which, in which the police went to a psychiatrist to solve a serial crime. And so that book, book came out, I don't know how long ago it was now, five years ago. And, and I was just in the course of researching that book, I was spending a lot of time reading old newspaper clips and also some FBI files. And I came across the story of Abe Reles, the field general of Murder, Inc., I guess we could call him, um, the man who was responsible for the hundreds, hundreds of mob murders, mostly in the 1930s. And then he became, so he spent his adult life killing informants, and then he became the biggest informant of all, and then died, Not, I guess not surprisingly, he died under mysterious circumstances. So it immediately, immediately just like jumped out at me as a good story. I mean, this was a book author. People are always saying to me, oh, such and such is interesting. You should write a book about such and such. But, you know, such and such doesn't really, whatever that is, it doesn't necessarily make a good book just because the subject is kind of vaguely interesting. The story has to have a certain kind of like a certain form or narrative or architecture. And I could tell when I read about Abrellas that it, you know, it felt like a book and, you know, it really felt like a Netflix show to me, you know, kind of had that kind of story. People talk about story arcs. It really had that kind of a story arc. And so it just jumped out at me immediately as, as, as a worthy, as a worthy subject. And, you know, all of these gangsters that he was around um, at that time, the fam famous gangsters like Lucky Luciano, we know a lot about them, but, you know, we don't know that much about, about Abe Reles. And so, and so it seemed like it was worth doing for that reason as well. It's funny hearing that explanation. It kind of shows like, maybe that's why I enjoyed your book so much. We're kind of kindred spirits because 
So that's what we do on our podcast is we cover criminals, but we don't cover, you know, Lucky Luciano and all the guys everybody heard of. We try and cover some of the other guys. So I kind of agree that, yeah, just because the story is interesting or great. Sometimes you find these little gems of these people that nobody's ever heard of. And you're like, ooh, why isn't this a story? Like I always joke, one of the taglines of our show could be, why isn't this a movie? Because almost every time (laughs) we cover these people that nobody's heard of by the time you're done, they're like, wow, this is the craziest story ever. Yeah, yeah. I totally get that. I com- I completely get that. When I was working on this book, I felt like, I mean, in a way, it was hard to write the book and do the research because every every person that I learned about was just, you know, this incredible, you know, fascinating and often very peculiar character. So if you're a listener to our podcast, you're probably a fan of the gangster stories, the gangster genre, true crime. And, you know, so Ed, you would obviously heard of Murder, Inc. And I would definitely recommend the book because this story is so sprawling. When you start looking at when it goes out to, you know, Lefke Buckhalter, Anastasia, like all the biggest names, you know, get dragged into this story around, like you said, Abe Reles, who many people don't know of. But yeah, he's kind of the field general of one of the biggest hit squads in the United States history. Right. And he 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 was I mean, he didn't live large the way those famous gangsters did, you know. Lucky Luciano was living at the Waldorf Astoria and going to Manhattan nightclubs and dating, you know, well-known showgirls. Um, Abrellas wasn't like that. He was a Jewish kid from Brooklyn and he was a family guy. And, and that in itself, I think was, is, is really fascinating. He, you know, he, he led this, just this vicious and sadistic life as a, as as uh, as the head of Murder Incorporated, but at night he would go home to his family in in Brooklyn and led a pretty normal, otherwise conventional life. One of my favorite books from that era, from the nineteen twenties or thirties, about a Jewish Jewish gangsters was called. But he was nice to his mother. That was the title of the book. <laughs> so it's it was a little bit like that. People haven't heard of Abrellas because he. He didn't have the same kind of flamboyant profile as as the famous gangsters. So even though I guess me being a glutton for punishment, even though Abrellas was already a tough pull, there already wasn't enough information. I decided to go with an even deeper cut, and we opted to cover Harry Strauss, also known as mm-hmm. Pittsburgh Phil. Yeah, and there's even less information about him than there is about Abrellas. And I was able to find a couple pretty good books, but your book was one of the best resources. And to me, I found Pittsburgh Phil to be like quite an interesting character. And I was wondering if you have some, if you have any idea why, if you look at it, this is a guy who possibly could be one of the biggest hitmen in the history of American crime. And so little is known about him. And what do you what do you can you attribute to that like what do you, do you have any thoughts on that why nobody's talking about this guy who's possibly the biggest killer in the history of the mafia well part of it is i mean what i said about abrellas a moment ago applies to to pittsburgh phil as well he was he was a he was a brooklyn kid who you know rarely even went into manhattan and so i mean he was this incredibly prolific killer like you say I mean, just to kind of back up for a second, when Murder, Inc. was asked to commit these murders around the country, Pittsburgh Phil was kind of the go-to guy. And so he would conduct himself like a middle management businessman. He would pack a bag, 
the bag would have um, a change of clothes and but it would also have like a knife and a gun and a and a length of rope in it and then he would fly to chicago or miami and he would he would murder whoever he was supposed to murder without even knowing their name or who they were and then he would he would immediately come back to brooklyn and read about it in the next day's newspaper and he put his hand in the air for these assignments he wanted to do this he enjoyed this i mean he was i mean abe Reles was a murderous, vicious character. But Abrellas, I think, would, qual- I mean, Pittsburgh Phil would qualify, legitimately qualify as a, as a sadist, however you define that term. He really wanted, he enjoyed the murdering. And he, he was a glutton for the murdering. He couldn't get enough of it. And often he would devise these really kind of like t- torture scenarios. And then he would, you know, kind of sit back and laugh and and watch somebody watch somebody die we joke around on our podcast a lot when you talk about these old gangster things like some of the things that they could almost be pioneers for that they're really not it seemed like pittsburgh phil could almost be a pioneer of like the saw movies yeah and one other thing i wanted to say about pittsburgh phil speaking of him being a pioneer is that i think he may have pioneered the crazy defense right when he was being tried he assumed this, he put on this act as if he were crazy. He didn't shave, he didn't cut his hair. He pretended as if he were, had lost his, all of his sensibilities and his marbles. And um, it didn't work. He went to the electric chair, but that technique was borrowed years later or used year, years later famously by another mobster, Vincent the Chin Gigante. And I've always suspected that the Chin deliberately borrowed that weird form of legal defense from from Pittsburgh Phil. Yeah, that's definitely one of those things where we just assume, oh, pleading sanity, we've all heard it, you know, so many times at this point, but somebody had to be the first one. And when you do a lot of historical research, you don't hear a lot of that from people that seem to be mentally capable enough to stand trial, but were able to grow a beard and chew on their suitcase and (laughs) just pretend like they're so out of control that they don't know what they're doing. Obviously in the end, it backfired on them. Yeah, it didn't work. He went to the electric chair, but it's it's interesting because he really tried it. I mean, he really went, you know, all in for the crazy act. So one of the things that I read about, it seems weird because you said that he was a bit of a sadist, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie American Psycho. Uh, An American Psycho is Christian Bale, and he plays this cold-blooded killer almost a serial killer type but by day he's a businessman and you know he does his sit-ups every day so his body looks good and he does a good skin treatment and that's another thing that kind of seemed a little bit like Pittsburgh Phil prior to trying to plead crazy and grow out a beard it seemed like he was very obsessed with his manicures and his you know his hairstyles and his outfits and stuff like that I wonder if that's something that kind of comes with that package of psychopathic killer is also like a meticulousness in yourself I mean, that is really an interesting question. Years later, uh, one of the top mobsters in Brooklyn was a man named, you, you, I'm sure you know this name, Anthony Gaspipe Casso. Mm-hmm. And he was meticulous about everything. Like he had OCD. He was, 
completely fastidious in in every way. And what you say is maybe is true. I mean, Pittsburgh Phil was a little bit like that too. He he did get manicures all the time, constantly getting haircuts. He was very particular about his wardrobe and he was vain. I mean, and he was really a ladies man. And so, yes, there was this kind of strange attention to the details of his personal grooming. Um, but on the other hand, he was engaged in these most gruesome acts of violence and somehow those two went together so one thing i want to ask you i don't know if maybe you could shine some light on this if not i understand but it's it's a problem i have a lot when i do research especially some of the stuff that's you know generations back it looks in most of the research that he's probably around five nine five ten kind of a well-built guy but a lot of times i hear him referred to as tall and handsome or built like a linebacker i mean do you think it's one of these things where maybe he just carried himself bigger than he appeared or yeah, I've, I actually, to, to be totally honest, I wondered about that same thing, because by today's standards, he was not that tall. But I wonder if maybe, you know, everybody was shorter than. Is it possible that in the 1930s, kind of the standard for being tall was just different than it is than it is now? Abe Reles was, you know, probably like five, six or something. So um, I, I don't have a good answer for that, but I have wondered that as well. I think he was a well-built man, regardless of what his height was. I think he he was um, I think he looked after himself and um, I think he was well built. And so I can kind of see him being described as as looking looking like a, a linebacker. And you can see it in the photos of him, even in the police photos. You can see that he you know, there's a little bit of a movie star quality to him. So maybe it's one of those things where it's kind of like in the in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So it wasn't that tall, but when you surround yourselves, Abrellas was notoriously short. Yeah. Like all of a sudden it just makes you look a little bit taller. It might be. today By today's standards, he might be considered really short. So you kind of touched on him being a ladies' man. And we did mention that on the podcast, but there's something that we just didn't quite get into, but it's something that you mentioned and it was one of his girlfriends, uh, Evelyn. Evelyn Middleman. Could you tell us a little bit about right. that situation? Because so, I actually was looking at trying to add that. And when we do the podcast, we have some drinks and kind of, you know, shoot the shit. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, you know, accurately explain this. So I figured having you on and you had mentioned it when we were emailing back and forth. So I figured maybe getting it from someone a little bit smarter, a little bit more of authority on the subject could cast some better light on uh, Evelyn. Well, I, I certainly don't know about smarter, but I can tell you what little I know about Evelyn Middleman. So El Evelyn Middleman was really a bombshell. She was like this beautiful girl who um, hung out in the clubs in Coney Island. In those days, Coney Island was where young people went to drink and dance and um, it wasn't just the amusement parks. It was really a, you know, a party destination. And so the gangsters kind of picked up on this beautiful girl. I think she was 17 or 18 um, at the time. And she had a series of boyfriends who were like middle to low level gangsters. And one by one, they were killed. She eventually ended up with Pittsburgh Phil he had was talking with her on the street. I think he knew her slightly. He got he was playing pool in a pool hall um, at that time, and he ended up beating the boyfriend with the pool cue. 
and later that boyfriend was was murdered. So by all accounts, Pittsburgh Phil and Evelyn had that kind of really scorching romance. There is some information about uh, some quotes from her that I pulled out of the district attorney's office at the time in which she said, he's not the smartest guy around, but, but I really love him. And she was dubbed the kiss of death girl because her boyfriends kept dying. And when Pittsburgh Phil went to death row in Sing Sing prison, she came to see him just um, less than a day before he was electrocuted. And of course said goodbye and, and, and kissed him. And that was, that was her last, you know, public appearance as the kiss of death girl. I don't know that anybody really knows what happened to her after that. I really tried hard to find, to, to find out what happened to her and um, couldn't, couldn't find any information. You know, it's kind of ironic. You have this boyfriend that, yeah, I'm really in love with him. He's not that bright. Uh, that's a scary combination. So you could see why a guy like Abe Reles might have really liked to get their, get their hooks into Pittsburgh Phil because they were kind of childhood friends. Is that correct? Yeah, they had grown up together. They were really, really uh, childhood friends. And I think like a lot of these guys, Pittsburgh Phil was maybe not that bright and he, he was malleable. You know, he was easy to manipulate. And Abe Reles and others would sort of dangle shiny objects in front of him and he would he would do whatever they said in return for pay, for cars, for uh, jewelry. So he was he was kind of a lug. He was kind of a big, handsome um, lug who who didn't, you know, didn't really have a lot of options in life. And and like a lot of these guys, this was, you know, this was his this was his way to make, to make money and and achieve a, a certain kind of fame in Brooklyn. You know, and that kind of stands out in the story, because if you look at one point, Abrellas goes to jail for a little bit. And while he's gone, you know, Bugsy Goldstein gets a pool hall and kind of runs that. And then everybody else kind of goes business as usual. And Pittsburgh Phil just kind of kind of stays as just kind of a muscle for hire guy until Abrella scoops him back up and brings him back into the fold. It's kind of a real one trick pony, I guess. I think that's true. He didn't have a lot going on. And I think Pittsburgh Phil was like was the kind of guy who, you know, he had, I don't remember offhand when he left school, but Abe Rellas left school, I think, during eighth grade. So the education was really limited, probably not of a lot of opportunities for Jewish kids from, you know, from Brooklyn during the depression. And so this was, this was the thing that he knew how to, this was the thing that he knew how to do. And, and if he didn't have, if he didn't have racketeering and murder for hire, you know, who knows what we would have done. So support for say hello to the bad guys brought to you by Manscaped, who's the best in men's blow the waist grooming. They offer precision engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code BADGUY at manscaped.com. We got, we all got the performance kits. You guys all got your kits, right? I yes, ask sir. that every show. I know you guys got them. Now, <laughs> so my bad. But yeah, it's uh, if you get the performance kit, that's like the Cadillac package. You get the lawnmower 4.0. You get the weed whacker, ear and nose trimmer. You get the crop reviver, the crop preserver, which is all both uh, like ball deodorants. Comes with like a travel case. And, underwear yeah anti-chafing underwear and some uh the fake newspapers that turns out they're mats so that you put them on the ground 
collect all your pubes. Yeah. Throw it out. Nice yep. little shaving mat and shit. Yep. But uh, yeah, the uh, little I gave my balls a little spritz coming out the shower today. So I named my nuts Andre Three Thousand and Big Boy because they are fresh and so clean, clean. Hey, and I would say that if nothing else. You know, the 4.0, it's a little bit over the top for you. You know what I mean? You just go into 70s jungles bush. At least get the fucking crop preserver and the crop reviver. And, there you, you know, go. Freshen your shit up a little mm. bit. And then they have a whole like suite of products. So they got lip balm. They got foot deodorant. All um, the standard toiletries. Yeah, anything you want. Regular face trimmers. Um, and anything you go anything you go and get, use the promo code bad guy and it helps the podcast. So you don't got to go get the, you know lawnmower 4.0 oh they got the uh the man wipes those be real yeah. good too yeah. so get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code bad guy at manscape.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscape.com and use code bad guy unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with manscaped now like we have mentioned you know the book is kind of the story it's the story of abe Reles, but it's a sprawling story that covers a lot of the gangsters of that time and I just kind of want to throw this out there kind of like as a teaser for people to go check out the book. Cause I really, really highly recommend it. It's a very good book, but just as an example of some of the other characters you could see, I was wondering if you could kind of tell the listeners a little bit of uh, the story of big Ganji Cohen. Big Gangi. Yeah. You know, big, big Gangi is, is maybe my, my favorite character in this, in this whole saga. There's nobody like big Gangi. So Big Gangi was a lot like Pittsburgh Phil. He was a hitman for hire, uh, worked for Murder, Inc., lived in Brooklyn, Jewish kid from Brooklyn. And what happened is that Big Gangi's best friend got into trouble. His best friend was a man named Walter Sage. And Walter Sage was a part of this circle of gangsters Walter had been sent up to the Catskill Mountains north of New York City, where the mob controlled a lot of the casinos in this resort area. It was a place where Jewish mobsters in particular hung out, but they also had some racketeering and gambling operations up there. And Walter Sage had been sent up there to run these operations. And word came back to Brooklyn that Walter was skimming some profits, that he was pocketing some of the profits. And that was that was a death sentence. And so they knew that they had to kill him. And so Abe Reles arranged for Big Gangi to be part of a small circle of people who went up to kill him. This was a really typical um, way of operating, you know, to get the best friend in on the murder was important because it made the victim less suspicious. Like you're not going to get into a car with a stranger, Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't hesitate to get in the car with your best friend. Definitely. Big Gangi thought maybe he like he might be set up as well. And so they're driving down a road. Uh, Walter Sage is sitting in the passenger seat. Big Gangi is sitting behind him. Big Gangi holds Walter back while somebody else ice picks him to death. I think it's like 35 or 36, um, you know, strokes of the ice pick. Uh, Walter dies they pull over to the side of the road and then Big Gangi runs off into the woods. He's really convinced that they're that now they're gonna, you know, turn on him. 
just kind of out of the blue, right? Just kind of randomly runs off into the woods. I mean, they thought one of the guys thought he was just going off to go to the bathroom, but he disappears and he doesn't come back. And they dispose of Walter's body. They dump it in a local lake. And then they, you know, where is Big Gangi? Well, he, you know, they don't know. And, and a couple of years goes by and they don't hear from Walter. I mean, from Big Gangi. What Big Gangi had done was to make his way to Hollywood and through a, another gangster named Slapsy Maxie, he had arranged to get bit parts in movies in the studio and he was a natural because he was a big hulking guy. So either, he either looked like a cop or looked like a bad guy. So he got a whole bunch of movie roles under an assumed name. And then one night, some of the guys in the Abe Reles circle um, went to a movie palace in Brooklyn. They're watching some, you know, kind of bad movie about a boxer who falls in love. And the climactic scene of the movie takes place at Madison Square Garden and the camera pans across the crowd and they are like oh my god there's big gangi he's in this movie and you know they can't believe it and so now they have to go to hollywood and kill big gangi but in fact the police got to big gangi first and he was tried in in you know in the catskill mountains and acquitted and he was one of the few people to really one of the few people in that world to be acquitted and get off and go back to, to a normal life. He went back to Hollywood and um, I'm kind of dating myself here, but for those of you who know that remember the TV show Bonanza, he was the body double for the, for the main character Hoss. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. For many, many years, he had this kind of lucrative steady gig on Bonanza and, and he really lived happily ever after. I get the sense that he was actually, despite his sordid background, that he was actually a very nice guy, a likable guy. Well, I think that's the story. If you look at a lot of these guys that are involved in this book, you see a lot of them that are just kind of victims of the certain, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, would have, if I want to say victims, but they have very poor kids growing up in a very poor neighborhood and just kind of end up in this way of life. And it seems like a lot of them at some point kind of realize shit, I'm really in over my head. But at that point, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. exactly. There was a guy, when you when I l- listened to you say that I'm thinking about one of these guys named Pretty Levine, who mm-hmm. he, they called him Pretty because he kind of looked like a movie star. And um, Pretty Levine got married and he had a baby and he really wanted to get out. His he he had a big hospital bill from the, his wife having the baby. He borrowed money from you know the loan sharks. He couldn't pay it off. I mean, it was really almost impossible to pay it off. The only way he could pay it off was to come back into the gang, back into Murder Inc., and perform services for Murder Inc. in return for you know as a form of paying off paying off his loan. So people were they were like you say. I think they were really trapped. And and the the Abrellas and others used these loans uh, as a way to trap these men who were, you know, many of them were like 17, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. And I guess not all of them started off in murder. They would use them at first for stealing cars, for, you know, different things they need going on or disposing of cars. But then once you start getting involved in those life, it's one of those slippery slopes where next thing you know, now you're on the hook and what are you going to do? Are you going to tell Pittsburgh Phil and Abrellas that you're out? that's not an option so next thing you know you're off into the woods and hiding out in hollywood 
you're not going to tell Pittsburgh Phil you're, that you're out. That's not going to work for you. Um, you're, it's exactly like you say. I think that they would, many of them would um, hang around on the corner outside of the candy store uh, that Abe Reles and his cronies, Pittsburgh Phil and, and Bugsy Goldstein, used as their headquarters. They would sit in a booth in the back of this candy store. And these, the younger guys would hang out on the street hoping to get, you know, hired for, hired for some errand. And often the errand was just disposing of some stolen car or it might be, you know, collecting money from somebody who was delinquent and paying the loan sharking loan. And then they would, yeah, then they would be, they would work their They would work whether they liked it. They'd be, you know, they would get more and more responsibility. And then, you know, and then they were in on the murders and often they would just be spectators to the murders. But then, you know, then they were then they were accomplices. So anytime I hear that big gangy story, my wife is a big fan of the movie Dirty Dancing, you know, mm. and uh, I read your book. I've been reading a lot more stuff on some of these Jewish gangsters. You know, I'd always been big into. I'm, I'm from Detroit. So, you know, I'd read a lot about the Chicago outfit, Detroit partnership. And, I, you know, I knew obviously the big ones, Lucky Luciano and stuff like that. But as I'm starting to read more about some of these Jewish gangsters, there's a lot of these resorts and they go summer in their resorts and stuff like that. And I had never realized that was a thing. And then you realize that so many of these gangsters either would just summer up there, which leads to them having rackets up there. And then now, like I said, every time my wife fires up Dirty Dancing, I'm just looking around in the background for like, okay, so somebody's got <laughs> a couple of these guys are gangsters. I know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was a Jewish resort area. And um, but for the gang, it was a place to, you know, to dump bodies. I mean, there was a time when one of the local farmers told the district attorney in that area, half jokingly said, you know, we're, we're, we farmers are afraid to plow up our fields because every time we do that, we turn up a dead body. Now that Walter Sage hit, when they got rid of his body, was his the one that ended up floating back up to the top of the lake? It's a grisly story. Yeah. So one of the things that Walter Sage had done was to skim the profits from I had said gambling. Mostly what that meant was slot machines. It sounds funny to say it because slot machines seem pretty innocuous, right? I mean, they're in every casino now. But in those days, they were illegal and they were like the really big moneymaker for the gang. And so to make their point, the guys who killed Walter Sage after Gangy Cohen ran off into the woods they tied him to a slot machine or the frame of a slot machine and also tied a rock to the slot machine. And then they dumped him in a local lake. It happened to be the lake that was really the most popular place for people to swim and go boating. Everybody thought that, you know, the gangsters thought that, well, of course, Walter Sage's body will just sink and decompose. But what happened is that it kind of, it bloated, you know, it filled up with air and then it bobbed to the surface in the middle of like a like a beautiful July day when the lake was filled with people canoeing and and swimming. So it was just this horrifying, grisly scene with his dead body is floating around on the surface of this little resort lake. Yeah, that'll re- definitely ruin your uh, yeah. your 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 swimming day, your beach day at the resort. Ain't going to be quite the same after Walter yeah. Sage floats up tied to a a, <laughs> um, a slot machine. Right. The kids are not going to forget that. <laughs> yeah. So it does seem innocuous slot machines, but 
you know, the more you learn about a lot of this organized crime, they were so big into not just slot machines, but also vending machines. So anything that you could just put small bits of money incrementally, because not only does that all add up over time, but also is a great form of money laundering too. So Right. And they had, you know, they, they were sort of like slot machine wars all over New York where different, different people would be trying to get their slot machines in, into, you know, the pharmacy, pharmacies or like candy stores or, or whatever. And Sometimes, you know, I mean, people, grocery store owners didn't necessarily want these slot machines, but they, they had to take them. And there was, a, there was a kind of territory skirmishes over who got to put their slot machines in which stores. Let me ask you this, and I know this is pure just opinion question, but, you know, you have done a lot of research. You, you, you've read about a lot of them. And, you know, Murder, Inc. is suspected of being involved in hundreds of murders. And they had a big, pretty large crew, though. So there's a lot of guys that were involved on that. And I have kind of thought this probably because he was one of my favorite. I thought that Pittsburgh Phil was the most interesting reading up on him. So I'm a little partial because he's the guy that we covered. But would you say out of the Murder, Inc. guys, would you think it'd be a safe bet to say he was probably one of the de- the deadliest out of the Murder, Inc. men? Definitely one, definitely one of the deadliest. Yeah, definitely one of the deadliest. I can't really think, I can't really think offhand of somebody who jumps out as maybe, as maybe deadlier than Pittsburgh Phil. Because Pittsburgh Phil was really the one who, as I said earlier, he was the one who was always putting his hand in the air. He wanted to go to Detroit and kill somebody. He wanted to go to Miami and, and kill somebody. He was, he was a motivated killer. How many people, how many deaths is he responsible for? I, I, we don't know. I mean, nobody knows because they didn't, of course, the mob doesn't keep, you know, records on these things. So we, we don't really know how, how many people he killed. Certainly dozens, I, I would say dozens would be, would be fair. I think that kind of tracks with what I was thinking. Now, I think if you look at some of these guys, you know, you have guys like, uh, you know, Red Levine, who maybe had a couple more high profile guys or you look at like bug workman who was in on the dutch shops hit which is a big name so i think there might have been some guys that were in some some bigger name targets but if you're just looking at volume he definitely mm-hmm. seems like the guy too and and i think you know it might have been how you said he was a sadist when you look at all these contraptions and stabbing guys 50 times and strangling them maybe there's a reason they didn't give him these big time mob bosses because that's just not a guy you can get up close to and hog tie yeah and i mean i'm thinking about what you said about bug workman who did was one of two people that did the dutch schultz hit in new in newark new jersey i mean bug workman at that time was he was a seasoned killer he was probably a safe bet a safe person to hire for that job. I don't know if Pittsburgh Phil was a safe, a safe person to, to hire or not. In that case, you know, they were bursting into a public open restaurant in Newark, New Jersey and shooting Dutch Schultz. Um, that wasn't really Pittsburgh Phil's technique. He was more sort of lower profile than that. You know, to burst into a restaurant and kill a celebrity ga- a gangster was not really what Pittsburgh Phil did. I, one thing that, you know, you mentioned trusting people, that one thing that sort of is horrifying and interesting about him is that he did develop this technique where he would tie people's arms and legs together behind their back with a noose around their neck. And then he would just watch as they kind of went, they kind of writhed 
and fought against the tension of the rope, they would slowly strangle themselves to death. It's hard not to think of him as a sadist in clinical terms when you think about about that. Now, I think, like we talked about Pittsburgh Phil, the book's about Abe Reles. Now, I wanted you to talk about Big Gangy, but then we already had guys like, you know, Pretty Levine pop up and Bug Workman. And I think that's why you, you really just got to go check out this book because it does a good job of telling the story it tells, but then you hear these big names that kind of pique your interest where you're like, Ooh, I didn't know he was involved in this, but then you also have all these guys that are almost like in a movie, they'd be called character actors who are these, Mm -hmm. you know, very interesting little stories, but they're just playing these bit roles that are kind of in and out. Uh, TikTok Tannenbaugh was another one that I, you know, I thought was pretty interesting in reading about. You you definitely got to go check out the book. Um, for a true story, you got Abrellas, you got a little bit of a love story, you know, doesn't work out too well. You got some mystery at the end. It's a bit of a whodunit. So, you know, all the things you could really ask for, it's all kind of wrapped up into the book. And it, it's factual. It's a good book, but it's it's also an easy read, too. It reads almost like a fiction novel where you're not just a list of date names and dates that are hard to follow. So it was really well done. And I highly recommend the book. Thank you for all of that. I appreciate that. I especially appreciate your um, saying that it reads like a novel because I really had that in my mind as I wrote it, that I wanted it, to, I wanted it to feel like fiction, even though everything in it is true. So you wrote four books now. This is your fourth book, correct? Right. So what, uh, what's next for Michael Cannell? What do you got lined up? Do you have anything in the works, anything planned? Yeah. Yeah. I'm working on another, I have a, I'm, I'm working on another, another gangster book. It, this book is, I don't know that I should give you the exact details. You may have to wait to find out, but it's, <laughs> it's about Brooklyn. In, I will say that this, this period that you and I have been discussing is the period in which organized crime became organized. Um, 1930s is sort of in some way, wouldn't you agree is sort of like the golden age of, of gangsters Definitely. And then, and now I'm writing. I'm writing a book about when the gang, the Italian gangs, the the five crime families of New York, fall apart in the in the 1980s and 90s under the weight of prosecution from Rudy Giuliani and the and the RICO laws. So in a way, these these two books are bookends. One is about the mob becoming organized, and one is about it about it kind of collapsing. Well, that's awesome. See, you're a lot like some of these uh, these poor Jewish kids from Brooklyn. You weren't trying to get into that life. You're just trying to become an author. Next thing you know, you're a crime writer. You just can't get out of this gangster world. It just keeps pulling you I back know, in. Just, it just sucks sucks me. And I will say that it it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Just these characters are all incredible. And like, like I said earlier, I didn't intend to write about the mafia, but it's just too, the material is too rich. And, and the stories are just beyond belief. Now, before we go, like I said, one more time, the book's A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc. by Michael Cannell. Um, you want to go ahead? You want to give us your Instagram, your website, anything that you people could? Yeah, I have a website. It's just my it's my full name, Michael Cannell. That's last name spelled C-A-N-N-E-L-L. It's uh, just an author website, but all of my material is there and and I really love to discuss these issues on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Michael Cannell. So I hope to hope to hear from you all there. 
Well, and just so the fans know, even before I asked you to interview, just kind of asking you about the book or just interested in general, I've reached out to you and you're always very responsive. So go check out the website, check out some of his books. It's all good work. So definitely reach out to him. Well, I appreciate you coming on, taking time out of your holiday weekend to talk about Pittsburgh Phil, uh, the manicured psychopathic killer. <laughs> what what says about the celebration of American independence but that? Yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, I really, really enjoyed this. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your, I'm really flattered by your interest in the book. Well, and then when the next book comes out, I follow you on all the social medias. I keep track. So I'll check out the new book when it comes out. And uh, hopefully you come back on and talk about that book a little bit too. I would really love that. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming onto the show today. I appreciate it. This is Say Hello to the Bad Guy. Thanks for listening. To the bad guy, the good guy coming last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. Down bad, my mama had to be dead. Spent my birthdays in the trap. We had to work with what we had. She been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man. Plus my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the cam. Man. And I don't need a hundred friends. I just want a hundred bands, a hundred jugs, a hundred scams. Hey, hey. So I don't money grab the hundred hams. So I don't money grab the bunch of bands. And I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the pistols. Fuck a judge with a grudge. I'm blowing crud for my mental life. And I still keep it on me, run into your big homie for you meet your dead homie, yeah. yeah. Say hello to the bad guy, bad guy. the good guy coming last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. Pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. And her ass fake And she in love with the bad guy But bad bitches never act right She act up until that bag fly I get a turn around at one night Say hello to the bad guy The good guy coming last place Smell that dope when I pass by I let my money at a fast pace Say hello to the bad guy Smell the dope when I pass by